women can do that. Mm. That may be very stereotype. I would have imagined that. And I'm sorry because I'm this kind of feminist who behave, but I am also so absolutely shocked that a woman can be in that position and did not use it to build other women, mm. rather destroy them. So, because we are so absolutely So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast series. I'm Nathan. Today we're joined by the director of Women for Refugee Women, Alphonsine Kabagabo. Alphonsine, welcome. Thank you. Um, it's it's a privilege that you you can join us because often we we come across in the refugee sector. Um, a lot of people who are in leadership positions. You're you're the first black woman that I've I've come across in this sector, and um, your your journey is an extraordinary one because we often hear about genocide, and we really get to have an opportunity to speak to survivors of of the genocide. You survived the the Rwandan genocide, and I wonder as now as director of Women for Refugee Women. Take us back to having to flee your country and to seek sanctuary and now finding yourself in this position as director of Women for Refugee Women. What has that whole journey been like for you? Uh, thank you, Nathan, and many thank you for having me. It's a pleasure also for me to be able to talk to you. And uh, I actually shocked if I'm the first black woman who is the director or the leader of an organization that supports people who are refugees or are seeking asylum seekers. But if that's the case, I'm also very privileged. Yes. And hope I'm not the last one. Going back to your question, believe me, it's exactly 27 years that okay. I survived the genocide in Rwanda. We only commemorate a few weeks ago the, the 27th anniversary or 27 years of surviving. So in 94, in April 94, when the genocide started, I was a teacher, I was a woman very active in the community, I was a leader of a youth organization, and I did not expect one day I will find myself in a foreign country as a refugee. Mm. However, each time I think about it, I realize how lucky I have been to survive. Yes. To be rescued from hiding in a Catholic church mm-hmm. with a six months old baby, with mm-hmm. my parents who were in their 70s, to be found and saved by Belgian soldier, because one of them was my brother-in-law. Okay. Coming from Belgium, to find us hiding and be able to take us in a tank, take us to Kenya and from Kenya to Belgium mm. and to get there and feel safe just because you are out of a war zone, just because you are out of a genocide that targeted everyone who was Tutsi like me. Mm. So when I go back to that moment, I always feel two things. You know, 
gratitude of surviving, but but I also feel guilty that I survived and not many other people survived. But I survived and I was able to go to a safe country. Yeah. And luckily again, I was able to get my asylum seekers request and application processes smoothly because it happened in the middle of a genocide. Right. Because the time I got to Belgium, it was in April, on the 14th of April, and the genocide was just happening. So the immigration services in Belgium couldn't doubt about what is happening. Right. I was so lucky to be supported, not mm -hmm. only to get my application, but also to be supported by organizations to rebuild my life. Yes. To feel again valued, to feel like a human being. I was also confronted with so many challenges of people who think because you are a refugee or you can do it to be a cleaner or you can do is to beg or you can do is to live in social housing or I had been confronted so much by those kind of really assumption that but I am today is the director of women for refugee many a testimony of when you have the right support from organizations like Women for Refugee Men and other organizations, when you have support for community-based organizations that believe in dignity of people who are refugees, you can change it. You can become who you want to be. Yes. And be now part of the solution. Mm. So that's how I see my story. I see by being offered the support I needed to rebuild my life yeah. and being resilient, I am able now to be in a position when I can support other women who are in the same positions mm -hmm. and give them opportunity to change their life like mine has been changed. So it's a, it's a privilege for me now to work for women for refugee women because it will give me a chance to give back mm -hmm. and to change the life of other women like me who are actually most of the women we support are even not only coming from genocide and wars, but I've seen so many other challenges that I can't absolutely imagine what will happen if we couldn't support them. Yeah. So your your day-to-day -day work now, being director of Women for Refugee Women, you're confronted with, um, let's say, a very interesting home secretary who's got this new plan for immigration. Yeah. And at, at the center of it, on the face of it, it appears that she thinks that there are particular safe routes that uh, can only be used in order for you to be able to be given refugee status in this country. I wonder what, having a look at this new plan for immigration, what the position of women for refugee women is. Oh God, I remember the day it was announced. I almost cried. I say, how can someone, a woman like me, can talk about safe routes for women who are fleeing gender-based violence, who are mm -hmm. fleeing trafficking, mm -hmm. who are persecuted because of their sexual orientation, who are, and you can create a safe route for them? That's not possible. So that was for me a day when I felt so committed to work with the team in my organization to challenge it as much as we can. And our concern is just like she lives in another world, not in the same world as us. Yeah. And our main concern are like 
maybe many four things that we find incredible in this new bill to to say temporary settlement for those arriving from irregular roads. Hmm. You know, that's effectively when, but, taking away refugee yeah. status. I mean, Britain is a signatory to the refugee exactly. convention, and to to do that seems very remarkable. It's incredible. It, it, first of all, violating that, but also is not understanding the context of women. Me mm. talking about women who, if you are fleeing because it's domestic violence, it's because you are trafficked. How can you wait for a safe road? Mm. Do you do so you we, do you know of any women who you work with who could sort of fit into this category that that pretty Patel is seeking to define? Do they exist? I don't think so, because even myself, as I say, who was so privileged, I don't fit in that category. Because you say you went to Kenya first, so yeah, presumably I mean, she would consider Belgium. that a safe country before you go to Belgium. Yeah. And it's just, when I we, we heard about it, I talked with the team and said, do you really know some women who, they say, I don't say no. Yeah. And we are prepared to put testimonies, to write strong testimonies of women we have in the sec- in our network mm-hmm. to demonstrate that's not possible. But also the other thing that really worries us is this one-stop process. Mm-hmm. You know the one-stop process where they say you need to have all your evidence mm-hmm. for your claim ready when you... <laughs> we are talking about women who have been through so much trauma. Mm-hmm sometimes being able to really produce all your evidence the day you go to claim. Some people don't even claim. They are here for six months before they can gather their thoughts. They can be supported to be able to to present the evidence. So that one-stop process is another job for us because we know from experience that's mm-hmm. not going to be possible. It's, it's going to make women in our network even less able to to be supported to build their life in UK, in Britain. The other thing is really, the, the, we may talk about it later, but the, our other concern is the increased use of detention centers and reception centers. Yeah. That also in the bill for us is a massive no-no, if I could say that. Hmm. So what, what, what do you think the, the thrust of this really is? Because it looks like the only people in this new immigration plan who will be capable of achieving refugee status are people who were taken from resettlement areas. So do, do you support that as, as Women for Refugee Women? Do you think the British government should actively go out to, to refugee camps and go and take people there? No, I mean, we think it's okay to do that. Mm. But we also think you can't not support other people who are not in those, rest, you know, who are in those safe <laughs> yeah. camps of refugees. You have to allow also people who are coming dif- in different ways because there is no choice. They don't have the choice to be in an organized camp when the UNHCR can go and, you know, mm-hmm. talk and fill papers and fill forms. You can't not do that. So, yes, you can do that as one part, but you must also allow the system to welcome and support people who are coming for unsafe routes, who are coming from absolutely 
you know, countries where maybe there's no war, maybe mm -hmm. there's no even a, but they are absolutely subject to violence. They are mm -hmm. subject to discrimination of other forms. Mm. So what, there's no war in that country. Right. So what do you think if these plans actually see the light of day? Because she's still consulting at the moment. What impact will it have on the women who you support, Alphonsine? Yeah, actually, we have written a letter that was signed by other 70 organizations mm -hmm. highlighting the impact mm -hmm. of if the plan they have now is, mm -hmm. you know, carried through and, as you said, come to life. We have sent this wrong letter of three pages mm -hmm. to Preeti Patel to demonstrate the impact. Not only the impact of normal human being, you know, not really being human, not being empathetic, but we demonstrated the impact of so many women not being able to have a safe. Mm, to have a, a safe route. Route. Who are going to stay where they are or come here and become destitute. And destitution is one thing we don't want absolutely to continue. We are supporting already a lot of women who are destitute. So it will increase the destitution. Mm of women we support. It will increase their poverty. It will increase massive mental health challenges mm. that we are already seeing. So we really have highlighted that and you can check our website, the data is there, mm -hmm. to demonstrate that will be devastating impact. Right, so and we hope actually she has seen the data and she's gonna come back to us with it. <laughs> do, do, does, do you actually have a relationship with the Home Office where they, as a as a leading organization in in the refugee in the refugee sector, do they actually have conversations with you? No. No, no we don't. There isn't any channel there possible you for know, you to make representations. You know, for now, no. I I mean I I, I can say that I have as I told you I'm new to the organization, but I have police in, in my team. Two people who are in charge of policy, one destitution and one detention, they have some contact sometimes that they can be able to really get more information and mm -hmm. know what is happening. But we are not considered as an organization that you come and consult and discuss and put strategy to, you know, mm -hmm. based on, you know how you usually talk, if you want to put a big strategy to really support women, you have to talk to the people who work with them, to yeah. the grassroots organizations. No, we don't have that relationship. So they, they don't consult organizations like yours at yeah. all before they come up with any of these policies? That would be great. What we don't want also is to have a close relationship when they can use us to say, oh, women for refugee men have said that. No, because we oppose most of the, the you know, strategy and the policies. So at the same time, it's a challenge. We mm. want to be able to be consulted and to be considered, but we, we want also to remain so independent. Yes. Which is, which is vitally important, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you know, at, at the centre of, of any asylum claim currently is, is this credibility test. <laughs> so now they've, they've put another obstacle, which is whether you've come in through a, yeah. what they define as a safe, a safe route. What, what is your organisation going to do, Alphantine, to to assist women who are already vulnerable to navigate this new system, which keeps on having new hurdles and obstacles put. 
Yeah, so what my organization is going to do is going to continue what we do now. We're going to make sure that, first of all, we welcome the women. They feel valued. They feel supported. They feel they have a space where they can talk freely. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we're going to continue to support them to access the services of organizations that allow them to have the case, you know, absolutely looked at to make sure they can have solicitors who understand the system. Mm-hmm. We will increase that. Okay. We are reviewing our strategic plan. Mm-hmm. And in in light of what is going to happen with this bill, we will make to change some of our strategy. Because mm-hmm. usually, as you know, we need to do more empowerment, more really activities to really increase their skills, to increase their self-esteem, their confidence. Mm-hmm. But we are thinking, based on what may happen, we may now really to increase more to support in terms of services on how you really put together your claim, how you navigate the system. Mm. We may have to increase that as an organization and to increase partnership with other organizations who do it. And the other thing we are doing, we are really getting into coalition with other big organizations. So we can make sure that we are supporting each other, we are bringing absolutely the voice of the grassroots women at the front. But the main thing for, for us as an organization is to continue to make sure we use the voice of the women to influence the public perception. Yeah. To make sure we continue to do that even more. Because the more the public will push, hopefully the more this plan will collapse. What, what, okay, that's, that's very interesting. It's very interesting that you, you talk about the, the public. What is your general opinion of what the British public, how they see refugees or asylum seekers or just their attitudes towards the women who you support? What do those women tell you about their interactions, say, with public services in Britain? Yeah, actually, it's a mixture. There's this perception that it's so hostile. Right. Yeah. But when the more you talk to people, the more they actually have been supported by this group in Manchester, actually mm-hmm. have been supported by a group of really local citizens. Mm-hmm. If I can put it black and white, say white middle class, somewhere they have been supporting us. So because there's this perception that everyone hates refugees, mm-hmm. it makes it feel that is the way. But we know there are people with compassion and empathy. Mm-hmm. And we want to talk into those people. Okay. Because we know there are so many of them. And one of the big projects we are going to start is a, a audience research. Okay. Which will allow us to do survey and to talk to people. To talk As a women organization, we want mainly to get to talk to young women, mm-hmm. professional young women, mm-hmm. who are working in big companies, who are working in public services, to really get that. But at the same time, we want also to continue to talk to other people in the mainly in the councils, you know, mm-hmm. the authorities. I, I don't know how you call it, but the, the local sure authorities. Yes, the local authorities. Mm. So we have a big project to do that because we believe the hostile environment is yes there, but it sometimes it's because we say it so much that we make it also even worse. Mm. So by trying to reach people. Who, who can speak out for us, who have influence mm. using the media, using the people who are absolutely YouTube influencers, mm. who are <laughs> social media influencers, who had so many followers. Yeah, it it sounds like a very dynamic strategy that you're 
that you've got there. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I do, I, I do wonder though about the vulnerability of of the women who who you support. What yeah. what sort of projects have you got to to sort of empower them? Because yeah. the asylum system is notorious for keeping people in the system for years and years and years without that. having anything to do because uh, people who seek asylum are, are not allowed to work. And so yeah. they can just drift in limbo for, for long periods of time. What does your organization do to empower yeah. those kind of women? Yeah, so as you probably know, the organization has a big, big focus on empowerment. And mm. that is true running classes so that like english classes mm -hmm. drama that allow you to really feel confident and you can express uh, yourself but we have classes about media you know training them on how you speak to the media how you tell your story mm -hmm. we have classes about yoga to relax and knitting that are specific skills but the main classes we learn now mm -hmm. like in this consultation we put together a guide to help women navigate the system. So we want also to give them skills in terms of using social media, using IT. Yes. We have an inclusion digital manager now to make sure that she's supporting women to not only have you know money to put on your phone, but also how do you use a Zoom so you can join a call? Mm -hmm. How you download it on your phone? So that's one important thing. Going forward, we are thinking to review the whole empowerment in, as part of our strategic review, and we're going to consult the women. We're mm -hmm. going to do a survey mm -hmm. and tell, ask the women in the network, say, what would you like to get out of these classes we are running? What will make you feel empowered? Mm -hmm. One of the things we, we are partnering with another organization as well is to absolutely do IT, as I say, IT, but also to do mental health support. Mm -hmm. We are supporting them, they only matter health, but also supporting some of the women to support their family, to support their community in, in terms of mental health. Mm -hmm. First aid courses. So we are really trying to absolutely amplify the classes we are giving. That one, but the second for me, what is most important actually, mm -hmm. is the connection connecting with them. There's no more thing, more empowerment than making sure the women come together in a forum, mm -hmm. in a network, just chat, have a chat, sisterhood, building this sisterhood that allow people to feel they have a family. Mm -hmm. they, they have sisters they can talk to, which has been the biggest challenge in the lockdown. Okay. You know, it's um, it's, it's fascinating, the, the work that you're, you're doing there. But... There is this overarching hostile environment that actually does really exist, which yeah. means that women who are particularly vulnerable are not able to access secondary health care um, in, in the NHS. I wonder, what are women presenting with? Because naturally, there's a lot of women who give birth in this country whilst they're having an asylum claim. And... What, what are they presenting with? What are you finding out about when using public services? Are they able to access all of the services that they yeah. require? 
not absolutely easy. So they struggle. And one of the services we started in the lockdown is a, a uh, partnership with uh, an organization called the Helen Bamba Foundation, when we support them with mental health. But the main thing, we have also put together a hardship fund mm-hmm. that sometimes just gives them, like today, I was talking to one of my colleagues, she said, I need actually to get uh, the finance manager to authorize payment for one woman who had a baby and she's not able to absolutely have any support with the social services mm-hmm. to buy food and milk. So we say, we, we do that. So we, every day, I'm discovering as a new director that mm. the, the grassroots coordinator, she's comforted every day with requests for women for support to know how to navigate the services. Mm. And she put them in touch with Notre Dame Refugee Center so they can help them. But we are comforted with women who don't access any funding. And as an organization, we are not a, an organization that gives grants, but we had to put up these hardship grants to be able to support women. Women moving, for example, that luckily have, have their status accepted it and they have to move from a temporary accommodation to a permanent accommodation. Mm-hmm. They're not even supported with transport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we come up with this absolutely amazing hardship run to be able to do that. But for me, what is uh, as part of the strategic review, mm-hmm. how can we also work with the social services, influence. Yeah. Have some insights in some cases, like in some bull when we have a lot of women and how can we have this kind of partnership that will allow us sometimes to go even do training to the people and talk to them about how the women in the network are suffering from the lack of understanding and support. Right. Do you, do you say in your experience, do you... Do you think that in general, the women who you support are aware of the services, but is is there a fear there? Which it, means that they, know, they don't yeah, want to, to go and access those services because of the whole way that the, the Home Office shares data with, yeah. um, with the, all public-facing institutions? I think that, yeah, thank you, Nathan, to remind me that I think that's one of the challenges I have been talked, uh, I have been told by the team there are so many of them who don't feel comfortable to go because they are scared that mm. the data is going to be shared. So what we try to do is, again, to encourage them and to sometimes support them in how you can go and talk. So we do a lot of mentoring mm-hmm. to the women on to be first aware of the services. We say, it's your right. Mm-hmm. You should access it. But also we support them to say, how can you do it? Okay. And who should you talk to? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we write, we help them write letters, mm-hmm. even if it's not a service we we have the capacity to do. But sometimes we have to help the women to say, this is a short letter that you can present to the social services mm-hmm. to put your case forward. And sometimes we make phone call for them. Mm-hmm. So when actually I discovered that it's a such heavy brought to the team, we are recruiting more staff to be able to give even more support to the women to make phone call. We have volunteers, they make phone calls to the women and find out some of those challenges. And sometimes the volunteers do offer to make phone calls for the women right. and to reassure them that 
the data will be protected, that there's a data protection and you can click and say, I don't, you know. So one of the training we are doing with the volunteers is all the whole thing about data protection. So they can talk to the women and they assure them, they assure them that even if the environment is so hostile, protection of data is one big thing in this country. So we know they can still not feel comfortable with that. The other thing, actually, uh, quickly, is uh, we have a group of women who, as you said, because they said they have been here for years without papers, they still can't access any support. Mm-hmm. And we, we told those one we have a, a partnership with um, an organization that can sometimes them give bank, a food bank, mm-hmm. food vouchers, can give them clothes, can really support them in kind of practical way. Because they don't have any other way. Yeah, it it sounds it sounds though, and the data seems to to bring this out that once um at least an an asylum claim fails, and then yeah. women are having to try to appeal those asylum claims, a lot of women fall into destitution, yeah, and then become vulnerable to to all sorts of of things. Um, what is women for refugee women's view on what is possibly a, a destitution crisis that could come out of of this COVID period? Because during this COVID period, most local authorities have been taking in women whose asylum claims have failed, who are who are yeah. still in the process of appealing, who could fall homeless. I wonder, do you think there is a sufficient safety net? to ensure that this this destitution crisis can can end. Oh good. I would say absolutely think that there's not a such thing safety net that we make the decision end and that's why one of our biggest focus is the end of the decision. It's mm-hmm. one of our biggest campaign mm-hmm. as women for refugee women. Because we did a report, I mean, I was not yet there, but I saw a report they did mm-hmm. in July last year after the lockdown started to identify how like, the lockdown has increased the absolutely the vulnerability of the women to sexual violence, of to mental health uh, challenges, so many things. So they did that report. That is helping us now mm-hmm. to shape our strategy post-COVID. Okay. Because we believe during COVID, yes, some accommodation were provided, you know, temporary accommodation with a lot of challenges, some women sharing with people they shouldn't share and all that. Mm. So we believe after COVID, there will be even more women out there. Mm. When That's why we are absolutely working on a distribution campaign strategy to mm. make sure that we can challenge it even more. Mm. I have to say one of the, the challenges as a director is how many can we support? How many can we support? Because when I came in, I was very excited thinking, I want to increase the number of the women we can have, you know, from 300 to 600 in a year. And, mm-hmm. you know, but the more I, I, the more I get to understand the organization and the challenges, the more I realize that we will have more destitute women with this bill. And that, but how many can we support? So mm-hmm. my hope is we're going to build a partnership with other organizations so we can reach more women. Otherwise, I really not, and I don't think there's a end of to the decision 
in the near future. But I am committed with the team to fight. To fight. To fight the system fight and... For the and end of the institution. Right. And, and to make sure that women can access safe housing. Um, yeah. Safe housing. When you don't have to share with people. When you don't have sometimes to stay with people who abuse you. Hmm. Because you, you don't feel you are allowed. You don't feel you have the right. You know, I have been a refugee and you probably have been, and you know how you feel mm-hmm. absolutely second class. Mm. So lifting women to say, yes, the environment makes you feel that way, but we want to work with you mm-hmm. to feel again that you are a human being and you need to be treated with dignity mm-hmm. and respect. And that's for me the biggest thing because I know that where I am today, it's because I was offered that support. Yeah. To have a job, you know, before I came to Women for Refugee Men, I worked for a big international organization mm-hmm. as a director for Africa region. And I used to tell myself, I, I was a refugee and I was told that all I can do is to clean. Mm. But because with the right support, I absolutely accessed the right services. I uh, accessed training. I accessed. I was able to be who I am today, and that's for me, Nathan. What I want to see with other women. So, so Alphonsine, there are structures out there where mm-hmm. women, once they achieve refugee status, can get training, can access mm-hmm. further education, can succeed. And become successes in in business in in the private sector in the public sector in in the charitable sector. You you're a shining example of that. Do do you think Britain does well once people get refugee status, but doesn't necessarily treat people who who initially fail with their asylum claim quite well? What what do you make of that difference? Do you think there's the transition? Is it made easy by by the services that are available, or do organisations like yours come in at that point to actually support people to achieve their aspiration? Yeah, I would try if I say no the details, of the, but what I know is the women in our network. Mm-hmm. We need to, we support them mm-hmm. to make that transition. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a group of rainbow sisters who are mainly, uh, you know, a group of women uh, uh, from free because of the orientation. Their their sexual orientation, yes. Yeah. So every week I get excited because I see on the WhatsApp group that one of them has now achieved her, you know. A refugee status, yes. (laughs) Able to stay and they are excited. And the week after I receive a message saying, but... She is not able to have accommodation, but she's not a- able to do that. So, and that's where we came in. Right. The person who ran that group always say, yes, we are celebrating that now. They have their papers accepted, but we need to support them mm. to access training, to access education. Mm-hmm. To We really did play a key role. Mm-hmm. For, some of them have been there for 20 years. Mm. You, you know some of them, and some of them we bring them to be volunteers, to be trustees in our organization. That mm-hmm. I would like to increase that number. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that even before they transit mm-hmm. from being asylum seekers without, you know, 
actually from being vestiges to mm. what hopefully getting the refugee status, we start already building their confidence. We start already building the understanding mm-hmm. of those, the, the, the services. We start already offering those training in an informal way. So when they get there, they are ready. Mm. Because it's really very scary to think, oh, now I have the papers, what do I do? Yeah, after being in limbo for, as you say, some yeah. women have been here for 20 years. 20 years in limbo. Mm. So working with them already in that time of when they're in the limbo, it's so important. Mm. I do wonder what you what you think about that, that a person can be here for two decades without papers and with no prospect of actually <laughs> regularizing their status. Do you know what I think? It's resilience. Mm. Without resilience and support for, from organizations like Women for Refugee Women and other organizations that you know probably better than me, mm. without that support, you will not be able to do it, but you need that support and you need yourself to be resilient. Mm. Because I, I have friends who went through that system. And I know the only way is because they have these support through family, if you have a family, but through organization, community-based organizations mm-hmm. that support them. Quite a lot of churches, you know, that's really help. Without that support, I don't think you can do that. Mm-hmm. There's no way. Yeah. But for me, it's the key thing, the community-based support that so many of my f- friends I know or other people I know Mm. And organization like Women for Refugee Women, without these grassroots organizations, mm. would be yeah. suffering catastrophic um, yeah. uh, things in in the community. Um, let's yeah. talk about and- let's talk about Pretty Patel and the direction <laughs> that she's she's leading the the Home Office because she recently opened these former army barracks to to take in people who come through the channel crossings. I mean, I think everybody will agree that those channel crossings are very dangerous and we sometimes okay. see women yeah. with children in those boats and it's, uh, it's really yeah. frightening that that happens. But the idea that once those people arrive here, they're then put in a what appear to be a very derelict... Uh, army barracks and there are women being put there but the new plan that she has is she's expanding the detention estate where people get get detained i I wonder what you what you think about this this new approach from pretty patel because she will be detaining it seems far more people than any previous home secretary oh god what i think about it it's Inhuman, it's absolutely disgusting. And believe believe me, I can't believe a woman can do that. Hmm. That's maybe very stereotype. I would have imagined that. And I'm sorry because I'm this kind of feminist who behave, but I am also so absolutely shocked that a woman can be in that position and not use it to build other women, hmm. rather destroy them. So. Because we are so absolutely committed to challenge her on that, mm-hmm. you know they are planning to build a new detention center in Country Doha, and mm. we are 
absolutely one of our focus. We have two campaigns going on now. One is the immigration bill. Mm-hmm. The other one is to fight the opening of an adult detention center for women. Mm-hmm. We have demonstrated through examples how that affects their mental well-being, that affects everything about being a human being mm-hmm. that is treated with dignity. So we have so many examples. And again, we wrote a letter to Priti Patel to challenge that. Mm. And we are prepared even to take legal action if we have to. That, so another detention center can't be open. You mm-hmm. are coming from trauma. You are traumatized. Mm-hmm. You were tra- Yes, you, you came sometimes from this route when you are in this small boat, when you have been absolutely situation where you're being trafficked by people who abuse you and you mm. come here instead of letting you go into a community and have the support of the community they lock you down mm. it's not something i will ever support and i will never understand what is in principal head to mm. do that and my hope is i can meet her and tell her what i think yeah, I think that would be a really fascinating meeting to to witness. I wish I could be a, a fly on the wall to see uh, the, those those kind of exchanges. And you, given, you know, in my in my experience, I was very lucky, as I say, but I stayed in a refugee center in Belgium for a week. Mm. Only a week. Okay. I always remember when I said the people staying there. I always remember the food there was so bad mm. that for a week. I couldn't eat because the first time I ate, the first night I ate, mm-hmm. I have to tell you, I had to throw up because it was just not something I could. That's something that you could eat. Just because I had a sister, she will try and bring some food without. And each time I think of that experience, I say, Alfonso, please fight for other people not to be in that situation. Mm. Because this is a refugee center, they don't treat you like human being. Mm, it's, it's they think a... you are not allowed to be there. You are, they're just being, you know. So for me, that ex- that experience of just a week, and mm. I imagine people who have to stay there for months. Mm. You know, it's a, it sounds really a terrible and harrowing and traumatizing um, experience that people face in in refugee yeah. camps and places like that. It's it's extraordinary that the Home Secretary is seeking to do these things yeah. and and. Before we conclude, Alphonsine, I, I wonder, given all of the issues that we've discussed from these safe routes, which are not really safe routes, to destitution, to lack of access to services that women face when they come here, and legal services that are very difficult to access as well, I wonder what, what do you make of Britain? Do you think it's a safe place for women to seek refuge? Yeah, that's really, to be frank, it's a difficult question for me. Because at the same time, I think if I look at what Priti Patel and uh, her government are doing, I will say, no, this is not a safe place. Hmm. But when I look at organizations like mine, in the coalition we are building with other organizations, like you know, the glass, the system of centers question, but also with this bill, immigration bill, we are today, actually, mm-hmm. at five, launching a coalition called mm-hmm. Together with Refugees, with big organization, Refugee Council, you know, Red Cross, so many. So when I see the commitment of an organization like mine and other organization and individuals, mm-hmm. 
to fight this immigration, it gives me it gives me hope mm-hmm. that Britain, despite the policy of Priti Patel and her government, it's a safe place. Compare if you 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 are in a country when at least there's no war because mm-hmm. I came from a country when there was a war of genocide. Yes. Even if I'm I. I was here and I'm treated without so much dignity and whatever, uh, respect. But I can say, oh, I can sleep without, you know, thinking that my house is going to be destroyed by the killers. Mm-hmm. So I always think about that. I always in this mind, I say, yes, it's safe because at least you can maybe sleep without the world, even if that's too much. But for me, it's only safe because there are people who care, mm-hmm. individual and organizations. And that's the only reason that gives me hope. Right, that's that's absolutely fascinating. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you, Alphonsine, and uh, you shined a light on your extraordinary journey from from Rwanda, where you survived the genocide, to becoming to leading a, one of the largest women's refugee charitable organizations, Women for Refugee Women. I, I wish you the best of luck in the future and thank you so much for, for speaking to us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. So thank you for listening to this episode of Still Realize. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that CARAG does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at Coventry. So until the next episode of Still Your Eyes, thanks for joining us and goodbye.